Good morning. I'm Bruce Morgan. My wife is Stacy, and we've been attending Redeeming Grace now for about 12 or so years. We have three kids that grew up here. You'll see them parachuting upon occasion. They've all kind of flown the nest at this point. And since everybody seems to be on different points of knowing what's been going on, this little uh, adventure God has brought into the Morgan family these past six months, Matt and I talked and said it's probably a good time to catch everybody up. So in March, I got what I thought was the absolute mother of all canker sores. And um, that quickly morphed into a visit with my ENT, PET scans, and CTs. And then it wound up being a surgery in mid-April. They removed a piece of my tongue almost the size of a double-stuffed Oreo. You will never eat a double-stuffed Oreo the same way again. Um, pathology graded it as a stage 2 tongue cancer. Because this is my second time having this, I had it 11 years ago, the decision was made to be very aggressive. So in June, I had my second surgery. They opened up my neck, took out salivary glands, which is why I have to walk around like a redneck with a solo cup. We got the salivary glands and 27 lymph nodes. And they found microscopic metastases in one of the nodes. Literally, it was just a couple of cells. So it was good that we were aggressive. Um, but this pushed me into the stage three category. So it kept growing. That led to a series of medical oncologist visits and radiation oncology visits. Because a typical treatment for this type of disease is a very toxic combination of chemotherapy combined with radiation. In my case, the two physicians at Prisma and the two at Wake Forest for the second opinion, they all kind of came together on independently that the therapies were far too toxic for any potential benefit. Plus, and this is the kicker, they said, we want to save them in case we need them later. That's always a little unsettling to hear. Uh, so that kind of puts me right now in a holding pattern. Uh, do I have cancer? Yeah, I, well, most likely no. Um, they, they think they got it all. They think the surgeon got it all, but no one's really sure. So the, uh, the head and neck specialist at Wake Forest said it very well. She looks real close and bends over and she goes, Mr. Morgan, you have a very aggressive cancer and you need to be monitored very closely. So to hear those words in plain English are kind of, kind of startling. To hear it in a Romanian accent is almost unnerving. So um, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm under intense observation with blood tests and PET scans. And we just have to, it's kind of a waiting pattern. Let's see what happens. It might come back, it might not. But more important than my medical status is the lessons God has taught me during these months. And that's impossible to squeeze into the, into the allotted seven minutes Matt gave me, so I'm going to go for 30 and see if he gives me forgiveness afterwards. No, just joking, Matt. Um, and if you want inform more information or you want to talk about it, I'd be happy to talk, talk to you. You can sit down. You can buy me some pudding because it's easier to eat without a tongue, so it'd be great. So the lessons. So um, the first lesson is... Um, this has been the best diet plan I have ever had in my life. I have lost 25 pounds. So I'm not going to recommend it, but it really has been efficacious. I have clothes in my closet that I haven't worn for 30 years. So this morning I walked out. I was dressed. I had parachute pants on, a members-only jacket, and a little skinny tie. And my wife looks at me, and she goes, 
I thought I disappeared that outfit years ago. And I'm like, no, I, I dug them out. I thought you made a mistake. So, um, but it, it, it's been a lot of little lessons. And I'm going to go off the uh, notes here because I do want to share about my wife. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is that, <laughs> is that I married very well. One thing that really attracted me to Stacey when we were dating was, yes, she's beautiful, and yes, she's funny, and yes, she even laughs at my jokes. But she was actually a deeply spiritual woman, always in her Bible, always talking about God, always pursuing him. And during these past six months, she's had to nurse me through two recoveries, one of which was really bad. She's had to manage three kids and their adult life problems and how to be a liaison between them and their struggles and me because they didn't want to bother me with what was going on. It's been phenomenal the way she's been. And it's one of those things, I've seen her do this before in different circumstances, and it's one of those things you go, it's made me fall in love with her all over again. So thank you. I mean, there's at one point, we didn't know what was going to happen. I could be dead in, two, two, in a year or six months. Um, there was a serious concern that I would lose my ability to talk because the tumor could have seeded down the tongue. Um, the ENTs and the speech therapists are shocked at how well I can talk at this point. They're shocked. So that if I lost my ability to talk, there goes my income because I'm a sales rep. I make my money on my ability to communicate. So there's a lot of fears. And Stacy was phenomenal. I think it goes to um, how much she digs into the Bible, into scriptures, and into relationships to stay strong. So thank you. So now the lesson. So um, there are too many. Fill, your, fill in the blank with your favorite parable or story about trials or perseverance. Uh, disciples on the Sea of Galilee in the storm. The parable of the ten virgins. John's letters to the churches in Asia Minor. But John 16, 33 does a lot of bringing some of this together for me. In this world, you will have trouble. So um, some troubles, they just come out of nowhere and they kind of sideswipe you. Many troubles we actually bring upon ourselves. Others we think that we'll easily avoid by good planning and decisions. Originally, I thought this was one of them. This disease is almost exclusively the result of heavy drinking, chewing, or smoking. Almost exclusively. So I chewed once in seventh grade for about 15 seconds before I ever learned a very, very valuable life lesson. Um, I've never smoked, and I think I've had, if you combine all the communion cups into one glass, I probably had five alcoholic drinks my whole life. No one can figure out why I'm here or having had it twice. The, um, the surgeon put it the best. The second time, during my second surgery, I'm lying in bed with a drain tube hanging out of my neck. And he comes in. I'm like, thanks for all the work you've done these past couple of surgeries. And he's like, don't thank me. You're the hard case. I'm like, okay, what do you mean? He looks at me and kind of shakes his head and says, um, most of my patients have been drinking since they were 15 smoking two packs a day for 30 years. I mean, I, 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 what did they expect? I look at you, you did everything right, and I'm just sorry you're here. Kind of puts it in perspective. Like I, I have a disease that I have no business having. And then God sends storms into your life. And I think God brought me to this place for the benefit of those, but also for my benefit. 
in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I think underlying, I've always had this sort of quid pro quo approach to my relationship with God. If I do certain things or don't do certain things, then God should respond in this fashion. If you don't smoke, drink, or chew, you shouldn't get oral cancer. And my encouragement to all of you, if I can leave one thing to encourage you with, is um, to lean into the storms that God brings into your life. Um, don't wait till you're in the middle of them, but God is there anyways. But lean into enjoying your friendship with God now. So um, trust me, during these past six months, there have been some dark moments, times where I had to call friends and get talked through things or bury myself in hours-long hikes at Paris Mountain. That's happened quite a few times. I think about it. I got a disease that I essentially have spent my entire life avoiding. And ironically, my day job is a pharmaceutical sales rep. I sell cancer drugs. And I've actually promoted drugs in the head and neck space. And during the past 17 years of walking into cancer centers, I always said there are two cancers I never want. Pancreatic, because you go so fast. And head and neck, because you go so painfully. So God has allowed me to, to be in this position. And I have to remind myself he never left my side. There were little things that would happen right before my first surgery, before people, right before the first diagnosis. Most people didn't know. I get this text from a friend out of nowhere and talks about someday I'll praise God with my tongue. Because I thought I'd lose my ability to speak. Um, my second surgery, my CNRA walks in, and it's the, the guy here at church. He walks in and prays me. He said, I checked out who's your CNRA. He's like, he's a good one. You're in good hands. I'm like, what are the odds? God has always been around in little ways through this whole thing. that are just amazing. Um, there's a verse in Exodus 33 that's always kind of captivated me over the years. It's verse 11. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man would a friend. So I go back to the 12 disciples in the boat during the, during the storm. And what was it that got Peter out of the boat? Was it his brashness, his desperation, his hopelessness? If anybody knew that the best place to be in a boat during a storm, it would be a seasoned sailor. And he gets out. I wonder, why, I wonder if he realized that the best place to be during a violent time is with at the side. You're closest for red. So the storms are going to come. Don't wait until they're upon you that you start to lean into God. Do it now. Peter and Jesus were friends long before the Sea of Galilee incident. A friendship forged through time and sacrifices. The careers, the hobbies, the treasure in me time, they don't compare to the time that you can invest with God now. Um, if God is your friend, you might grow to appreciate something even deeper during the storms. So as Jesus says in John, says in the book of John, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. You are my friends. So my encouragement is throw yourself into the friendship. Thank you very much. Bruce this week, and it was several things were evident. One is that um, 
it is really a result. Bruce's ability to trust God has been a result of the fact that Bruce has cultivated a deep relationship with God for many years along the way. And because he knows God, he can trust in God. And that's an encouragement to you is get to know God now. And his troubles will come. Troubles will come. But the other thing I was impressed uh, with Bruce was that he was aware that God has been with him all the way. I mean, it's been difficult. God hasn't completely healed in every way, but God has been with him every step of the way. And that's what God promises, to be with us every step of the way. doesn't promise to deliver us completely from troubles in this world, but he does promise to one day fully deliver us and to be with us, to never leave us and forsake us. And that's, that's what God has been for Bruce. And the other thing that's evident is that Bruce has um, been a testimony of God's grace as he has just testified to how he's trusting in the Lord. So I hope you're encouraged by that kind of family update this morning. Another thing we're going to do as a family, instead of um, reciting last week's New City Catechism, because I trust, I hope at least, that everyone knows the Lord's Prayer, which is what we did last week. Um, We're going to look at question 42, which is for this coming week, and that is, how is the Word of God to be read and heard? How is the Word of God to be read and heard? Let's, Let's recite this together. With diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, Store it in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So that we practice it in our lives. And that's really what this passage is about today as well. Practicing the Word of God. What do we do with the Word of God? The Word of God is actually meant to be worked out in our daily lives. We're meant to take God's Word and then practice it. So let's turn our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians verses 3. We'll read the entire passage, but we likely will not get to the entire passage. So let's just read 2 Thessalonians verses 3 and verses 6 through 18. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord to the tradition that you receive from us. That word for tradition, by the way, is, this, is the same word that refer to for teaching. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that among you, Some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this reading with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's ask God for his help. Lord, we need you to hear from you. We need you to respond to you. Would you make your word alive to us today? Would you enliven our hearts and minds so we might respond to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I begin, I want to ask you a question. What would you do if you thought that Jesus was going to return at any moment? How would you live? How would that affect you? 
Now, I know that as Christians, we, we, we are meant to believe that Jesus is going to return any moment. But what if you really believe that? Do you really believe that? What if you knew maybe it that Jesus was going to return in a year for his bride? Now, no one knows the day or the hour. I'm not saying he's going to come back in a year. But what if you thought, okay, Jesus is going to come back in a year. How would it affect how you live? Would it, would it affect how you work, how you view your work? Would it affect the effort you put in? How would you live? Would it change anything about how you live? You see, this letter to the Thessalonians, it's meant to have an effect. It's the, the main theme that runs throughout the letter is really the return of Christ and that we can have hope, strength and hope because he's returning. Because he's come, because he's conquered, we can have strength, we can have hope that he'll return as well. This whole letter is really framed around the return of Christ. In the first chapter, he gives them some, some comfort that Jesus is returning. In the second chapter, he gives some details about, no, he's not returning right now. There's some things that have to take place first. And in this third chapter, what we see is that, that, that living out of the Christian life in light of his return. And so now he's getting down to, how do we work? If, if you believe that Jesus is really coming back, how are we to work in light of his return? Now, some in the church, they had thought that he was returning right away, and so probably they had stopped working because they were like, what's the point? If Jesus is coming back tomorrow, then I really don't need to work. And if other people are willing to work, I'm, I'm more than willing to live off of their good graces. And that's what some people in the church were doing. But the question that we're faced with here that Paul is trying to get across is, how are we meant to work in light of Christ's return? And I think what's clear from the passage is, is Paul says there's two ways that we're to work. We're meant to work in light of the teaching or traditions that he's passed down, the apostolic teaching. And we're meant to work in light of his example. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul has talked about his own example. He frequently points to his own example as he follows Jesus, we're to follow him. And so he talks to the church here and he says we're, we're meant to work Following the teaching, Christian teaching is actually meant to result in Christian living. Christian teaching is meant to be reflected in Christian work. And we have an example of that. And Paul says, you should know. You should know how to do this because I gave you an example. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. He says, you saw because we weren't idle with you. We never stopped working when we were with you. You saw what we were like when we were with you. And we worked night and day. We worked tirelessly. We didn't just work a nine to five. We worked all the time because we wanted to be an example to you. I think it was also because Paul wanted to make sure that they received the gospel free of charge. They, they weren't Christians when he first came into town. They had not heard the gospel. They were used to itinerant teachers coming in and charging money. And so they would gain knowledge for money. It would be an exchange. And, and I think Paul didn't want them to do that with the gospel. He didn't want them to think that the gospel is something to be bought or that it comes by our earning it. And so he says, our example was that we worked night and day. We weren't idle with you. We didn't eat anybody else's bread without paying for it. We want, didn't want to be a burden to you in any way. He says, look, I want you to imitate my example. And the idea of example is very powerful. That's how most of us learn. From a very young age, almost everyone here has learned by an example, either good or bad. And that's why often family traits carry on. Some of those are good traits, some of those not so great. Because example is influential in our lives. God built us that way. He designed us that way. I was reading a study about a psychologist, William Kellogg. He, he had... 
he had seen how if humans, human babies have been left in the wild with wild animals that often they'll end up being like wild animals. And he wondered, what would happen if I brought an ape or a chimpanzee into a human home, into my own home? And so he brought them into his house, and he raised this chimp, Goa, alongside his son, Donald. And that's a picture of them, two of them. And you think, oh, that's cute. Well, maybe. And so he, he tried to treat them both the same, interact with both of them the same, with no outside influence. So Donald didn't have other examples. He only had the example of the chimp, and the chimp only had the example of Donald. And so he, he brings this chimp into his home, and then what they discovered after about nine months or so of, these, of the chimp and the, and the baby living together is that Donald actually started imitating the chimp. And that's not really good because he started barking when they would bring him food, just like the chimp would bark for food. He started behaving wildly, and so finally they removed him from the home. But it had a lasting effect on the rest of his life. It stunted his development. It stunted his speech and his growth. And now he eventually did go on to get degrees, and, but he always struggled in life connecting to other humans, and it ended up taking his own life. All started from an early bad example because example is influential. And, it, and so Paul is telling him, hey, when you were in your infancy as a church, when you were brand new Christians, you saw my example. That was so that you can imitate my example. He says, I didn't want to create a burden for you. I didn't want you to be burdened to anybody else because I wanted you to know the gospel is not a burden. I wanted you to be free to receive the gospel without thinking that somehow you're paying for it, you're earning it. He said, it wasn't because we didn't have a right to receive payment. And later on, in other letters, Paul will say that, that a worker is worth his wages, so don't fire me right now. He says, you know, a worker is worth his wages, and, and those who preach are worthy of double honor. But, but what he's saying here is that it, it was my right, but I didn't exercise my right because I wanted to give yourself, my, you an example in ourselves that you might imitate. And in fact, Paul and Silas and Timothy, none of them, while they were in Thessalonica, received any funding. Now later, Paul is in Philippi, and he writes, hey, thanks to the Thessalonians, I'm actually able to preach in Philippi because the Thessalonians then did fund him later. But what was more important to him is demonstrating what it looks like to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, that following Jesus is a life of sacrifice. It's a life given to work. They didn't ask for any money when they were there. They didn't ask for the, the Christian discount either. Instead, they deliberately set an example for what does a godly work ethic look like? And, and this example is one of the primary means of discipleship throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's meant to be one of the primary means that, that we disciple other people is by inviting them into our lives, showing them our lives as an example of how we're seeking to apply the teaching, how we're living in response to Jesus, how we're living as we wait for his return. Now that, that might be an intimidating idea to some of us, and if it is, it might be because there's areas that we need to conform our lives into Christ's image. But in other ways, I think God has done a good work in so many lives here that, that it shouldn't be intimidating. You say, no, no, God's done this work, so I want you to show you what God's done, and I want to show you what I've learned about God. Because example is powerful. We're meant to live following example. And I, I can think about in my own life, when it comes to work, one of the best examples I can think of is my own father. He, he's not a perfect dad. He's got lots of flaws. I'm sure he's aware of that, but uh, I hope he's not listening to this message because of that. 
But one of the things that really my dad instilled in me was the idea of, of working to provide, working out of love, working to provide for his family because he loved us, working and sacrificing, giving of himself tirelessly, endlessly because he loved us and he wanted to provide for us. He wanted to care for us. It was his means of caring for us. And he worked long days. He would often get up at 4.30 in the morning. He would drive over 70 miles down to the D.C. area to work because it was too expensive to live there. So we lived out in the countryside in the Shenandoah Valley. And so he would, he would drive there. He would leave at 4.30. He would get there. He, he would get off after dark. He would clean the equipment up. Then he would come home very late. And I, I never once, here, here's the thing I, that struck me was I got to become an adult and I struggled with bad bosses. Anybody here ever had a bad boss, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Um, if you have one currently, do not raise your hand. Um, but when I first had my, a really terrible boss, I remember just being tempted to complain. And then I remember my dad's had a lot of bad bosses. I never once as a kid ever heard him complain about work or complain that he had to do that or complain about the sacrifice. And that's had a lasting effect. And so Paul, he's, he's pointing them the same way. He says, hey, look, look at how I worked you night and day because that's what a Christian does. A Christian works hard. A Christian works hard. He says, I want you to, to follow my example. Now, ultimately, Christ is the ultimate example. He willingly purposed to come and work for us. Christ was a manual laborer. He was a carpenter, probably until about 30 years old when he started his time of ministry. He, he worked and he lived perfectly. He worked on our behalf for us and for the glory of God. He worked sacrificially for our good to provide salvation. And then Paul and the apostles are just following Jesus' example. And they're saying, now, as we follow Jesus' example, follow our example. Because theology is actually meant to have an effect on how we live. What we believe about God is meant to have an effect on how we work. And Paul wanted them to see that in his own example. Now, this, this isn't a message. Paul's not saying here, you earn your salvation by working. No, he's saying because you have salvation, then we get to go to work. And as we think about this passage, I want us to, to consider, are we, are we aware of the example we're setting to our family members, to our neighbors, the people around us, and how we're working. Are we working to the glory of God? Are we working sacrificially? We're working to love God and to love other people. What kind of example are we setting? After all, in this passage, Paul really is emphasizing, and he's pretty serious here. He uses the word command three times. In verse 6, in verse 10, in verse 12, he uses the word command. And he's really serious because he wants to drive home the fact that, that Christians... Um, Far from saying, okay, now that I'm in Jesus, I can just relax and take it easy. He says, no, we're made to work. Christians were made to work. It's part of our inherent design prior to the fall. Prior to the fall. He's not making a suggestion. He says, I'm, I'm giving you command in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's elevating it more than just saying, I'm giving you command. He's saying, this is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is over all, the creator of all, I'm giving you command in him to get to work. And you wonder, okay, what, what does this mean by work? So what if I'm unable to work? What if there's a physical disability or a challenge? Or what if you're a student? What if you're working in the home? What if, what if you're retired? What does that mean? More importantly, what does the Bible mean by that? You know, the Bible tells us really from the very beginning, one of the main purposes of man was to image God by working. When, when God created man, it says in Genesis 1, 26, he made man, he says, let us make man in our image. And then he does that. And then he says, let, us have, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock on all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he gives him authority over everything. 
And then God commanded in Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. And then, and then in Genesis 2, it kind of rewinds and explains what does it look like? What does it look like for man to be given this creation mandate to rule, to take dominion? And so in Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then God plants a garden. And then in, in Genesis 2, 15, he says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and to keep it. So often when I think of work, I think of work. Now, not church work, of course. <clears throat> But when I think of work, when I thought of work when I was younger, I would think it's drudgery. i got to go to work. I have to do these things. i got to earn a living. Thank, thanks be to God that I've never felt that way about church work. It's not, it's not drudgery. It's not, not really a, a career. It's a, it's a calling. But, but at the same time, any kind of work can feel like something that's not right. And sometimes we, we view work as a curse or view work as something bad or not good. But work was given before the curse. This is part of who we were. Part of our very purpose was work. And actually, in Revelation, I'm guessing we're going we're gonna to get to work. It's just not going to be a burden. There's no more thorns, no more thistles. I love the picture we have in the Scripture about, about the lion laying down with the lamb. And then it says, get this, it says, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. That, that implies, instead of fighting, now we get to be about tilling the ground again keeping the garden, working for God's glory because it's, it's, it's how we image and reflect God. And so work is at least part of our calling and it's part of how we subdue the earth. It's also part of how we take dominion over all that God has given to us. It's how we, we spread God's rule and his reign. That's dominion. How we spread God's rule and reign in the earth is through our work. So whatever you've been called to in work, and that work can be anything. It can, no matter whether you're retired, you're a student, you're unable to have a job. You don't have a job, but you're between jobs. We can all work for him with whatever way he's called us and whatever gifts and talents and abilities he's given to us. We can all be at work imaging God, glorifying God, reflecting him, taking dominion, having dominion, spreading his rule and his reign, subduing those disorderly things in our own life to the glory of God. And it's worthwhile. All work is worthwhile. All honest work is, is dignified work. Whether that's working in a job and study, it's in prayer. Maybe you may not be able to have a job, but, but can you pray? Can you talk with somebody else? Is that, is that work on his behalf in care or serving or just in actively seeking to trust in God through an illness or disease? And then telling other people about that. Working whatever means we are able to. It's not only a blessing, it's a gift from God. God blessed man, and part of the blessing was giving him something to do. Work's a blessing, it's a gift. It's a primary way where we carry out our commission. And all kinds of work can be equally pleasing. All kinds of work can be worship to him. And just because if you're in a stage of life where you've now quit your career and you are retired, it doesn't free us from the obligation, hey, we're still to work for God, to, to work for his glory, to work to spread his name. And our work is about bringing the world under the loving rule of Jesus Christ, actively engaged in whatever he's called you to do. 
That doesn't mean you have to hear an audible voice from God, but it does say, okay, God, what, what talents, what gifts, what abilities have you given to me? How can I steward them? How can I work for your glory? Because we're, we're called to, we're commanded to work. And Paul says that, that when we were with you, he says, because when we were with you, we already told you that if someone doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. That seems pretty extreme. And why is that? Well, I think it's for a few reasons. One is because this not working actually goes against the creation mandate, goes against being image bearers of God. He says, no, that says something negative about God. It says something negative about who we are. But it also says something negative about the gospel because the world is a watching world, watching to see how do we work? How do we serve God? How do we image him in the world? And so if Christians are refusing or not willing to, doesn't mean they're not able, but if people who are not willing to work, that says something negative about the gospel. That's a, that's a bad gospel witness. Scripture's not speaking, you have to be cautious here, he's not speaking to those who are unable, he's saying those who are unwilling. That, that word for willing, it says in verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The word for willing is, is very important. Anybody who's not willing to work shouldn't eat, but what he's addressing is here, those who are idle and unwilling to work and be busy about the work that God's called them to. Addressing those who are capable but unwilling. Now students, you, you are... Your work is school, or maybe you're not in school yet, but your work is to obey your parents. Your work is to spread God's name in how you are honoring your mom and dad. Being actively engaged in whatever capacity God's called you is work. And he says, he says, we hear that some among you, by the way, are not busy at work, but you're busy bodies. And the, the Greek words he uses, he says, you're not working, but you're all about work, or pretending to work, or around work, faux work. And so what does he command them in verse 12? He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ, do your work quietly and earn your own living. He's saying instead of working to be noticed, working for notoriety, working for people to give you applause, work for the audience of one. Work quietly to earn your own living. Work before the Lord. Don't, don't work loudly being a busybody in everybody else's business. He says, no, work quietly. Work to provide for yourself and for your family. And by the way, remember how this whole passage began in verse 6. He says, we command you brothers. This whole passage is meant to be understood that we work in relationship. We were made to work in relationship. God didn't call us as Christians alone. He called us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that says, when you command you brothers, it's the same word used for brethren. It means brothers and sisters. We, we command you brothers and sisters. You're together. You're a family. And this work is in context of family. In fact, most of the people in Thessalonica were working. But there was a subset who were doing harm to the gospel and were causing their family members to struggle, their church family members to struggle, because they were freeloading off of them. They were living disorderly lives. This, this idleness, the same word for idleness, it's, it's disorderly. It's, it's like a soldier walking out of step. They weren't living in a way that's keeping in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't living lives that were transformed. Instead, they were living haphazardly, disorderly. They were living in idleness. And so it was causing problems in the church. But we were made to work in relationship. And so this whole passage is framed to brothers. He says, keep away from any other brother who's walking in idleness. Now, that might seem shocking. But the inference here is that, by default, we're meant to not keep away from our brothers. And so, 
Work is meant to be in relationship. And when someone's not working, we're, we're meant to have, it's meant to have an effect on our relationship with them. We're, we're meant to relate to them in such a way that we, we let them know that it's not okay that you're being idle. It's not okay that your life is disorderly. It's not in keeping with Scripture. It's not okay. We were made to work in godly relationships. And he refers to those relationships in verse 6 and then verses 13 to 15. And he commands them again. He says in, in, in verse 12, he says, Now we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus, keep away. Now in, in verse 13, he says, Brothers, don't grow weary. What he's acknowledging here is this difficult. It's difficult working, being in a church family, when you have people who are engaging in disordered lives, who are walking in idleness. It's difficult. When, when, when some people are taking advantage of the good graces of people in the church because they're just unwilling to work, and it's much easier to take advantage of the love and the care and the grace of people in the church. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's wearying. And so he tells them in the context of that, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Because those disordered people, those idle people, they were a danger to the unity of the congregation. They were a danger to the proclamation of the gospel. And he says, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. It's distracting from the good work you are doing, but in all of this, in your own hard work, your own labors, be a gospel example. Relate to those who are out of line as a brother and sister, and, and don't grow weary. And he says in, in verse 14, how do we relate here? He says, if anyone doesn't obey. So he's repeating the same thing he told him in verse 6. He says, if anyone doesn't obey what we say, take note. So we're not to just ignore that, like, oh, that person over there, they are, they are living disordered lives. They're idle. He says, no, we take note of that. We don't ignore that. He says, have nothing to do. That doesn't mean that we don't talk to them, but he says, don't, don't hang out with them. Act like everything's okay. Don't act like their lives are being lived in an okay manner in keeping with Christianity. He says, no. He says, don't have anything to do with them. So they may experience a godly shame, that they may be ashamed. Because it's shameful that we're not, that we wouldn't seek to honor God with our lives, with our work. But he says, instead of giving up, he says, don't grow weary, take note, don't indulge in our idleness, don't get angry either though, because he says in verse 15, he says, don't regard them as an enemy. You know, if someone is living a life as a brother and sister in Christ, and their life is disorderly, and they're taking advantage of other people, they're mooching off other people, they're living off other people's good graces, it could get frustrating. It could get tempting. You might be tempted to anger. And so he says, don't, don't regard them as an enemy. They're not. Because relationships are meant, I mean, work is meant to be done in relationships, so treat them as a brother because they're brothers and sisters. He says, warn them as a brother. Look at verse 15, warn them as a brother. They aren't our enemy, they're a brother or sister in Christ, and they need help, so treat them that way. Warn them as a brother. Don't, don't write them off. Warn them so they can honor God. Warn them out of love. Warn them because you want them to live in conformity with the image that God has made us to be. And Jesus has now recreated us so we can live that way. We're made to relate to each other and to work in relationships, but it can be difficult at times. He says, in your relationships, persist. Don't grow weary. Continue and seek to restore but how do you do that? How, how do we seek to live this way? How do we seek to work this way? Well, thankfully, Paul didn't end the passage there. He ends the passage with three more verses, with, with 16, 17, and 18. 
because he wants us to see that we're meant to rely on Jesus for all of our work. This isn't about self-effort. And working in relationships with other people who are difficult, it's not about self-effort. We're meant to rely on Jesus for all of our work. And he writes this closure. You might think it's a little odd. He says, I write this in my own hand. It's because if you remember earlier on in the letter, there were people who claimed to be Paul writing to the church, coming to the church. He says, no, I want you to see my own handwriting. This is my signature. I'm writing this to you so you can be sure that what I'm telling you is God's word. And then he points them to their hope. How can they have strength and hope to work because they get to work. And, and how can they have strength and hope to encourage others to get to work? Well, they do that by focusing on the, the peace, the presence, and the grace of Jesus. Look down at verse 16. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. What, what, he's, what he's commanding the church is that in order to work, in order to honor God and work, in order to correct those who aren't working, in order to be in relationship with this, not grow weary, we need to be aware of the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have peace with him, and that's what gives us peace with other people who are difficult at times, who are disorderly. In order to relate to each other as a loving family, what we need is the peace of Jesus Christ, and so he prays for that. And he puts it in a different way. He says, now may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ the peace of the Lord himself, the peace, the Lord of peace himself. Jesus is not just give us peace. He is the Lord of peace himself. He is the one who is peace. He's the one who made a way so we can have peace with God. He's the one who gives us peace. He's the one who grants us peace. And our peace is found in him because he is the Lord of peace. He rules and he interacts with us as Lord in such a way that he communicates peace to us. He himself is our peace. No one deserves his peace on their own. We don't work to get his peace, but his peace comes because of his work. All of us were enemies of God, all of us deserving God's wrath, all of us were disordered in our lives. None of us were any better than anyone else. We, we might be further along, but we're not better and yet Jesus has broken down the barrier to our peace. He's broken down the barrier to our peace by working on our behalf. Jesus worked to live a perfect life in our place. And that's why any of our work is acceptable because all of Jesus' work is acceptable. But not only did he work to earn God's favor for us, he worked to take all of our sins because we couldn't do that. He took the sacrifice that there, no amount of our work and effort could ever make. Jesus worked all the way faithfully until the cross and he finished his work on the cross by giving his life for us so we can have peace at all times, he says, in every way, in every way, at all times, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's happening in your work, no matter what's happening in your relationships, we can have peace at all times because Jesus is with us, he says, at all times. And then he, he, he finishes by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is really a Christ-centered way to end. Because although doctrine is meant to result in, in living, our, our living and our working can only be done as we receive the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can only be done as we live out in the good of the grace and peace that we have with Jesus Christ. And that, that word for grace, it, it, it's favor, undeserved favor. 
And now imagine that your favorite actor, your favorite musician, you had favor with them. You might get a free song. You might get to go backstage. You might have some benefits. If you had the favor of our governor, it could come with benefits like access or maybe special treatment or special insight into what's going on in our state. If you had the favor of the president of the United States, it, it would mean something if they bestowed favor on you. It would mean privileged access. It would, it would mean connections that would be a benefit to you. And Paul says, you have so much more than that. He says, the grace or the favor of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's what gives us strength for today and hope for tomorrow. That's what gives us strength to be able to do work. And that's why we work, because we have his grace. We have his peace. And so in response to that, we work not to earn because he's earned. So we have all the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ. The one who created all things is the grace that we have. The one who smiles on us and relates to us favorably at all times. All because of his finished work for us. I love this, how we close worship this morning. I didn't realize that was the song we're closing with, but it says it was finished on the cross. You know, we don't work because we want to be impressive to God. We, we work in response to him because he has finished his work. Because his peace, his presence, and his grace enables us to work for him. So we can have strength for the day, hope for tomorrow, as we, as we wait for his return. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, your, your word is sobering. Your word calls us to something. But Jesus, thank you that you don't call us to work to earn. You call us to work following your example. Work in response to you. Work at a worship. So Lord, I just pray that there would not be any legalistic burdens. But Lord, I pray that we would Respond to your grace. Respond to your peace. By wanting to give all that we have to worship you, Lord, to carry out what you've called us to and now you've enabled us to, to, to be your witnesses in the world. Lord, would you enable us to do that by your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. I know it was a little awkward, different, weird beginnings, but um, thank you so much for being with us for our family update on Bruce. Bruce, thanks for being a great example to us, and thank you for being a church where, where this is not the majority, too, by the way. Where I, I'm not aware of people who are idle, but this is great encouragement, so let's live in response to his grace. You may be dismissed. Thanks so much.